Now, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and that you would breathe life into your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I uh, was discussing with the kids this morning, uh, the importance of protective gear, I hinted that, uh, unfortunately, I had to learn this lesson of the importance of protective gear the hard way. Um, when I was a young adult, we used to spend a lot of time in our summers up at my friend's cabin at Horn Lake. We did a lot of wakeboarding, um, which for anyone who isn't aware, you get pulled behind the boat and try to jump over the wake, try to make it as big as you can and get as high as you can. And um, one week we were up there a whole week, and so I was determined determined to learn a certain trick, just a, a 360, which is you go up and you try to spin around full before coming down. Now, there was no one there to teach me how to do it, uh, but young and full of unearned self-confidence, I thought I should be able to just figure it out uh, just by using the mantra, you know, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. The problem, though, was I didn't succeed a lot. And uh, every time I failed, I ended up plowing into the water head first, which you know, at a, a good speed, it, the water's quite hard. And I was determined, though, not to give up, so I kept doing it. The other problem, though, was that in those days, uh, people didn't pay so much attention to wearing helmets as we do now. And this meant that at the end of the first day, I had quite a bad headache. And I ended up spending the rest of the week at the lake on the couch with a headache, feeling nauseous. Uh, as I'd now given myself a mild concussion. And, you know, I still feel the effects of that to this day, especially when I smash my head into things as I continue to do. Anyway, after this lesson, I definitely went right out and I bought a helmet right away and I've worn one ever since uh, in every kind of dangerous activity, which I continue to do. As we've observed a few times now during our journey through the Lord's Prayer, sometimes sheer willpower isn't enough. Jesus teaches us through the Lord's Prayer that we need God. And as we see in the sixth petition of the prayer, the penultimate or next to last petition that addresses the perils and dangers of temptation, sin, and evil, we're taught that facing these on our own is definitely not enough that we definitely need God's protection. Well, as I say, we're coming now towards the end of the Lord's Prayer. The first half of the prayer, which focused on praying for the glory of God, has now shifted to the second half, in which we focus on the needs of all his followers. Jesus teaches us to pray for provision for physical needs, which can also be said as a prayer for provision for spiritual needs. And then to pray for forgiveness of our debts, the sins we have committed, as we have already forgiven those who owe us, those who have hurt or sinned against us. After these prayers for provision and forgiveness for past sins, comes a prayer into petitions for protection from future sin. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. 
And so we see that Jesus concludes the prayer he teaches his disciples that begins with praise on a somber note, addressing his disciples' very real, constant battle with sin and evil, with these two petitions for protections from these. The penultimate or next to last petition, the sixth petition in the Lord's Prayer, is presented to us in most biblical translations of the Gospel according to Matthew as lead us not into temptation. We've noted a few times now that the words of the Lord's Prayer that we pray together are sometimes slightly different from how we receive them in the Bible, in Matthew's Gospel. In the traditional Old English version of the prayer that we pray at our 8.30 service, we still pray, and lead us not into temptation. But the contemporary version that we pray here at our 10.15 service has adopted the translation, Save us from the time of trial. These two requests, though similar, are quite different. So which is it? Well, as is often the case, the answer is both. The Greek word from the Gospel according to Matthew that is translated as temptation is perasmos and can be used to mean a calamity or an affliction or a trial or temptation from sin. This week it was really interesting to see that the Strong's Greek Dictionary has a very interesting definition of the word, an experiment. It gives the definition a putting to proof by experiment of good, experience of evil, solicitation, discipline, or provocation. In other words, we see that it is a test through these various trials, as one might do in a science laboratory, various trials in an experiment to test something. So that the word perasmus can indicate temptation or a trial, a testing. Now, these two English translations are different, but linked. So why do we pray and lead us not into temptation, and why was it recently changed to save us from the time of trial? Just a few years ago, Pope Francis decreed that the English translation and lead us not into temptation be replaced by the translation, save us from the time of trial. And when this happened, at first there was some debate over whether we or even the Pope can just go changing the prayer that Jesus taught us. But of course, going back to the Greek, we see, as we have observed, that both translations are correct. So why did he suggest we change it? Why do we have both versions in our 2019 prayer book? The reason that was given is that the translation, lead us not, to temptation is not incorrect, but it can be easily misinterpreted, as it can lead us to the question, does God lead us into temptation? Is God the one who causes us to be tempted? Does he put evil in our path? Does God tempt us to sin? The simple answer to these questions is no. In James, the brother of Jesus' letter to the church, he explains from James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, as he himself tempts no one. 
As our catechism puts it, God never tempts anyone to sin, nor is he the cause of any sin. But so that we may grow in obedience, he does allow us to be tested on occasion, as he allowed Jesus, as we heard in our gospel reading this morning from Matthew 4. God does not tempt us to sin, but he does allow us to pass through periods of testing. He does sometimes lead us into situations that test us. But what's the difference between testing and temptation? First, let's look at the question, what is testing? In Peter's letter to the church, he writes, 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Peter goes on to explain that trials, challenges, hardships, even suffering, are an inevitable part of the life for believers. They are the norm for Christians. They're not a surprising exception. And we see this throughout the Bible, when God tested Abraham's faith by asking him to sacrifice his son, Isaac. We see this in the entire account of the life of Job, as well as many accounts of the life of many of the prophets, and in the Acts of the Apostles during the days of the early church, in the lives of James and Peter and Paul and John and all the others. We see it throughout the Bible, and I'm sure many of us can relate through many experiences of testing in our own lives. But why? Why does God allow us to be tested, to suffer through these trials? I sort of got the beginnings of that question from two of our kids today. I was going to recommend C.S. Lewis to them, but no, I'm fine. A New Testament scholar named William Barclay explains the word parasmos is regularly used of God placing a person in a situation which is a test, a situation in which they may fall, but in which they're not meant to fall. A situation which may be their ruin, but out of which they are meant to emerge spiritually strengthened and enriched. We can fail these tests with a negative outcome, but we are meant to succeed with a very positive outcome. And this is why James shares that we can count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds, for we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. It strengthens our faith. The Apostle Peter even goes so far as to suggest that when we are tested, we should not be surprised by the fiery trial, but should rather rejoice insofar as we share Christ's sufferings. That as we follow Jesus, as we walk in his footsteps, we will also share in his sufferings. But this fiery trial is like the fiery process of refining gold, and it will purify us and strengthen us and mold us. It will transform us and make us more like him, producing steadfast faith in him. So that as we prayed today after our worship and praise, following in Jesus' footsteps ultimately leads us to eternal glory. And that is why, God allows us to be tested. It's to strengthen us 
in our faith and trust. It's to make sure we put our trust in God and God alone. What then does temptation have to do with it all? As Daryl Johnson puts it, a test is something to prove a person's character and in the process improve it. A temptation is meant to entice a person to sin, to bring a person down in some way. Whether it is a test or a temptation depends on who is behind it and how we respond. Who is the source of temptation? As our catechism explains, the source of temptation is definitely not God, but rather the world, the flesh, as we heard in our reading from the epistle this morning, and the devil all of which are enemies of God and of our spiritual well-being. As we have observed before, and as we've seen in our Gospel reading today of Matthew's accounts of Jesus being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, the devil, the tempter, uses the world and the flesh to tempt us as well. In the Gospel account of the devil's temptations, we see that the devil focuses on three areas to tempt us. Physical needs and desires, when Jesus is tempted to give in to his hunger, possessions and power, when Jesus is tempted to rule over all the kingdoms of the world, and pride, when Jesus is tempted to have angels acknowledge and celebrate his status as the Son of God. And this is why John writes to the church in 1 John 2, 15-17, Do not love the world or the things in the world, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever follows in the footsteps of Jesus follows him to eternal glory. And we see in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness that it is ultimately the devil, the evil one who is behind temptation. As Daryl Johnson highlights, it is the evil one who seeks to turn tests into temptations. There are events and experiences in our lives, tests, through which the Father intends to prove and improve our character and faith. But the evil one sneaks in and intends to destroy our character and faith. God tests us to strengthen our faith, but the devil tempts us to weaken it and to destroy it. And this is often very subtle, but is unrelenting. He just keeps coming and coming and coming. And if any of you recognize times in your lives that you've been tested, you know it's relentless. And so the petition in the Lord's Prayer, do not lead us into temptation, is not to suggest God causes temptation, but it is a petition for his protection from it and from sin. And we see this through other prayers. Through the Lord's Prayer, we've seen parallels with other ancient Jewish prayers, prayers that Jesus and his followers would likely have prayed regularly during their own weekly customary worship. 
These other Jewish prayers offer the petition, Do not let us be overcome by temptation, or do not let our faith be tested beyond what it can bear, or let us not sin when we are tested. And so rather than let us not be tested at all, Jesus is instructing us to pray, allow us to be spared from difficult circumstances that would tempt us to sin. Allow us not to fall into sin. Jesus instructed his disciples in the same way in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we read in Matthew 26, 41. When he told his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Because the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Even the most loyal, well-intentioned believers can easily give in to temptation, giving in to their various physical desires or needs, like sleep. Because we don't have the strength, we don't have the willpower to say no on our own. And this is the key takeaway here. Praying to God for protection from temptation and sin serves as a warning, another wake-up call, that we don't have the strength to endure temptation on our own or by our own willpower. It's an acknowledgement that we're too weak. But again, the petition isn't meant as a discouragement or an impossible challenge. It's an encouragement to once again turn to God and trust Him. Though God does use testing to strengthen us, though Scripture does teach us to rejoice in the face of such trials, Jesus also teaches us that being aware of our weakness, we shouldn't desire this testing. And so Jesus teaches us to pray to be spared from those situations that make obedience more difficult, in which we may find ourselves vulnerable to giving in to temptation that will result in sin leading us away from God. Because even though we may be willing in spirit, we are still too weak. And this means we need God's help. We need God's protection. So that ultimately, through the Lord's Prayer in the second half of the prayer, when Jesus teaches us to pray for our needs, He is always teaching us to acknowledge that God knows what is best for us and to commit to trust Him to provide, to forgive, and to protect. Temptation is an enticement to abandon this total trust in God. So how then do we avoid temptation? Well, we've already answered this question. We pray for protection and trust God. And Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10.13, God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God has promised that he won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. And even when we face morally challenging or confusing situations, we should never think that we have no option, no alternative, other than to behave in a way that is not in step with what God has taught us in a way that we heard about in our epistle reading this morning. The promise from Corinthians 10 is that there will always be a morally right solution that does not require disobedience to any of God's moral laws. 
that does not require behaving in a way that does not reflect God's character. The stress of the sixth petition is that there will often be times when we're too weak or too vulnerable to follow this right path. And so through the sixth petition, Jesus teaches us to acknowledge this weakness. Rather than try to depend on our own strength, our own willpower to avoid sin in the face of temptation, to turn to and trust in and depend on God through prayer. And so our catechism explains we can guard against temptation in three ways. First, by recalling God's word. By recalling the many verses of scripture we've looked at today, as well as many others, all that Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, John, and Paul wrote down to help instruct and equip Jesus' followers, the church. Second, by praying. Praying the Lord's Prayer, a prayer that includes asking for strength to endure and protection from temptation. And third, as we looked at last week, by our corporate, shared confession of sins together, which also means living accountably with one another, being open, honest, and transparent with one another, acknowledging that we are all in the same boat, that we all have given in to temptation and do so regularly. Because when we confess our sins, we also do so knowing that God promises forgiveness. This is why James writes in James 5.16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And because as John writes in 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to send those sins away, gone forever. And so, through the Lord's Prayer, we pray for protection from temptation while acknowledging that we still give in to temptation all the time, but also acknowledging with thankful hearts that God forgives us anyway. And this is why one of the great leaders of the church from a few centuries ago, Martin Luther, is reputed to have said that he went to bed with the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer and woke up with the sixth. And that we should probably do the same. Go to bed, reviewing the day, recognize our need for forgiveness. But when we wake up, we should also realize that we need protection for the day to come. And ask God to help us recognize temptation and ask God to give us strength to overcome it and choose God's way instead. The Lord's Prayer helps us to recognize that we can't do it on our own, any of it. And so praying this prayer, as many of us do on a regular basis, is a regular commitment to trust in God instead of ourselves. Because as Oswald Chambers writes in his celebrated book of daily devotionals, the moment we recognize our complete weakness, our dependence upon him, will be the very moment that the Spirit of God will exhibit his power in our lives. Let's pray. Almighty God, 
we recognize and acknowledge that you are our strong tower of defense in all times of trouble. We offer you praise and heartfelt thanks for our deliverance from all the dangers that surround us. We confess that your goodness alone is what has preserved us and what will continue to preserve us. So we ask that you will continue to show your mercies towards us, that we may always know and acknowledge you as our Savior and our mighty Deliverer. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 